Section 74 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Tatiana Chichilla. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombaugh. Suicide, Part 6. The Monroe Snyder Case, Part 3. But the case did not end here. The insurance companies were not satisfied with the preliminary proofs of loss under the respective policies, and the claims were not paid at maturity. Finally, a compromise was effected under a portion of the insurance, while the Mutual Life decided to defend its interests in a suit which was instituted to recover the sum of $30,000 under its policies. This company had certain legal defenses under its contract of insurance with Snyder, but in addition thereto, the cause was tried upon its merits, under the question of suicide or homicide the policy declaring the contract void if the insured died by his own hand. The case is very fully stated in the charge of the court to the jury, from which we make the following extracts. It is conceded to be impossible that the body could have been where it was found through any simple accident without some effort or will of a human creature. There is a difficulty which we will consider more particularly hereafter in comprehending how the body could have been where it was found without some other agency than that of the dead person in his lifetime. The stream had not force enough to move it, even if the fall had been in the water, but the weight of probability is that the fall was in a dry place, and not in this shallow stream. The body was from 20 to 25 feet, I think you will safely say from the evidence, at least 22 feet, from the nearest point which it could have reached from the bridge. Now, gentlemen, it is very unsafe here even to argue about probabilities. The most improbable things are sometimes true, and the most probable things sometimes don't happen. But if you go from your probabilities, if the murderer stabbed this body after death, it is very strange he did not cut deeper. If, on the contrary, the wounds were inflicted during life, either by a murderer or by a suicide, there is no difficulty in finding just such little wounds as these. If a man stabs himself, he will very likely shrink from cutting deep, and if a man stabs another, he must do the best he can. It is admitted that the defendant has assumed and taken on itself the burden of proving the theory to your reasonable satisfaction, that this man died by his own act or hand. In other words, that the death was caused by suicide, and the question or questions are whether the evidence is incompatible with the contention on either side, on one that it was suicide, and on the other side that it was murder. The learned judge then very impartially and exhaustively analyzed the confidential letter which Snyder left addressed to his son, and then proceeded to say, It is for the decision of this case of no importance whether he afterward conceived the idea of suicide or entertained it when the insurance was effected. It is the same thing in any legal result, but it is important that we should get at the truth by whatever means because if we get upon the path by untruthful means, we get off the track and don't know where we shall lose ourselves. And for that reason, I have thought it my duty in this painful case to do justice to this man's memory, for he has an awful account to settle of debts, and in this respect I think injustice has been done him, and that there is not in the least ground to impute to him an intention to take his life when he made the last of these insurances. But, as I said before, that is not, I think, the question. The true question is whether, after that last policy was effected, this man, considering the desperate condition of his affairs if he lived, and the favorable condition to his family if the insurances were received by them, did not conceive, but meditate with more or less of resolution, the thought of taking his own life. If that is made a subject of serious inquiry, and I think, gentlemen, that it is, if you go into probabilities, much more probable, that when this simple-hearted man, as I think he seems to have been, found himself in this vortex of difficulties, not able to look his affairs in the face, when he saw that he had the insurance to this large amount, that the thought or temptation, or whatever it may be called, may have come into his mind, and that is the inquiry which we must approach with candid and serious thought. Now, here the evidence is twofold. First, the letter, and secondly, 
the occurrences which immediately preceded and followed it. When I say immediately preceded, I say immediately preceded the last stage of it. Gentlemen of the jury, this paper is not, independently of all its particular contents, of an extraordinary kind, as I can see at all. I mean to say that there is nothing surprising in a man's leaving confidential directions to his only son and heir as to what shall be done after he is dead, the sort of directions that are not to go into a will. I am not now speaking of this paper in particular, I am only speaking of the character of such documents. Now, there are two views of this paper called a letter. One is that it was a post-mortuary confidential communication to the son and heir, the other that it was a letter of one contemplating suicide. And there is the third view, perhaps, that it was partly each. That it was the production of a man who, although he contemplated suicide, was irresolute in writing it, and afterward as to executing the purpose. He certainly speaks in this paper of what he was to do if he were to live and go on in the world. He certainly speaks in the other parts of it that he was to go out of the world very soon with violence. It is, it seems to me, a paper of a man who seems to be vacillating between contending purposes. You have looked at my request in the early stage of this case at the signatures of the three stages of this paper. It is, I think, both from the contents of the papers themselves and from one of the signatures, there are three places where it is signed, evident that this paper was written at intervals. When the first stage of it was penned, nobody can conjecture, except we all know it was after the 13th of January. Of that fact, there can be no doubt. We also know the last of it was finished either on the night of the 20th of February or the morning of the 21st. The court then read to the jury extracts from the letter relating to the question of insolvency and about keeping the fire insurance policies in force, and then said, When he wrote the first of these three parts, he thought they would keep the property and pay the debts out of the policies. He, in the third stage, the third division of the third part, changed his mind, and thinking things not likely to be quite as favorable as he thought at first, he thinks that they had better sell, and says, Lewis, I think it would be best if something should happen with me, if you would get everything appraised and sell it. Then again, he says, Lewis, if mother ever gets money of the insurance companies, if she lives longer than I do, you must take care of it, for she can't, and don't let her lend out unless you see it. Then, gentlemen, he goes on. Lewis, I settled up everything with Lynn. He is to pay everything we owe over in Jersey. Then he describes his first settlement, and he closes up with Lynn over again. If anything should happen with me, I hope it won't, but we don't know, for life is uncertain, but death is certain. Lynn must pay everything what I owe in Jersey. I will now ask your attention to the parts of it which seem to import, or may be contended to import, that he intended, or expected, or contemplated an early and violent death. The heads of the argument on this subject are several, one that in which concealment is enjoined. Now, gentlemen, this I repeat is unimportant, unless it is made out there is something to conceal. Merely directions to the sun that this paper was not to be exhibited, unless there is something in it which gives effect to that direction, I have said, would be dealing very unfairly with what men leave behind them for their families. There is, however, I observe, as I shall read presently those parts of the letter, frequent expressions of apprehension of death, early death. There is also an indication of doubt as to getting money from the insurance companies. There is also an indication of an early time of anticipated settlement of dependencies, but that is fully answered by other passages which look to the future as though he was going to live. The court then read and commented upon the remaining portion of the paper relating to apprehensions of early death and to the several insurances affected upon his life, and said, Now, there is nothing surprising or evil in telling his son that he had affected this insurance and that the son must get the money, but the manner in which the subject is recurred to afterward is important, and the passage I have read is perhaps in one respect very important, but that is more for your consideration than for mine. He refers to the whole of the insurances amounting to $65,000, which he looks to as a fund for the payment of his debts. Now, he includes in that $15,000, as I understand it, or $10,000, as it is admitted, of insurance against accidents. 
If he did not contemplate a violent death, would he have reasonably considered that as a part of the available funds of his estate? Would a man who would look to something out of the common course as the cause of death speak of an insurance against accidents in the same category with the insurance that must be paid at all events, and sum them up as one whole as a fund to pay his debts with? The answer to it, however, is that there was enough without the policy against accident. But is that a satisfactory answer? Don't it still remain that whether there was enough or not, he looked upon it as a fund to come into the hands of his executors? Now, that there was an early time for the expected settlement with the insurance, that he had an idea of some difficulty about it, that he includes the policy against accidents in the sum of insurance money, are the points of chief importance bearing on the question whether he meditated suicide, in my opinion. In this immediate connection, I will refer you to the interview with his sister, Mrs. Kresge, because if the letter alone is sufficient, or if it warrants suspicions, they may be increased by what passed at the interview with Mrs. Kresge, and now certainly by the occurrence which follows. The question is, gentlemen, whether anything in this interview amounted to a leave-taking. It has somewhat this tendency, apparently, but we might have heard the answer, that it is only from what we know afterward, a sort of afterborn wisdom, that makes us attribute importance to what may have been a mere ordinary occurrence. In its important relations, I confess it has some bearing upon the question. But now, gentlemen, let us consider the occurrences which followed, because it may be that these occurrences are such that, compared with the letter and with the interview of Mrs. Kreisge, you may put them together and attribute a purpose that no one alone would satisfy you in attributing, and all of them together may remove a doubt that you might have as to any one in particular. The occurrences which followed the letter, if they form the inferences of premeditated suicide, they certainly throw a great doubt upon the question of the firmness of any such resolution. The evidence covering what occurred on the day and night previous to his going to New York is next considered by the court. The settlement with Lynn, the trip to New York and return, and the alleged conversations in the cars with Warman and Wilson. Upon the latter fact, the court says, Now, gentlemen, nothing can be more natural than that conversation, and it was a business-like conversation, which the event verified, because the omnibus, in fact, was not there when he got there. If he meditated suicide, it would have been a great comfort to him to have somebody to go home with him to prevent it. From that conversation, in other words, if he did, he was irresolute, and if there was any doubt about that, the doubt, I think, is removed upon the testimony of Mr. Wilson. Now, gentlemen, this transaction indicated, you may think, that if he meditated suicide, he would have been very glad for an excuse for not executing his purpose that night. In other words, that there was irresolution and no fixed purpose, but that he would if he found himself alone. No omnibus, no companion, occurs to the thought of suicide as quite consistent. Now, where do we next find him? And here comes a different part of the case. You find him, if you believe Mr. Billing, and I see no reason why you should not, we find him lying on his back on the footpath of the Lehigh Bridge, apparently asleep, at five minutes before ten. Billing would seem to have been a stagnant sort of person, but a very good man, apparently. The court here reviewed the evidence of the tollkeeper, and proceeded to say, Here was a man who should have been at home, and was found lying on his back with, as he said, wounds. If these were the wounds already inflicted, and he had laid down there to die, and got asleep, and was likely to be frozen to death with the cold, how does that alter the aspect of the case, unless you believe that the wounds had been inflicted by some person who had left? Now, Mr. Snyder, the deceased person, if that was the man on the bridge, did not make a long stay on the bridge. He went his way towards home, and he said, I can go home, so Mr. Billing tells us. But independently of that, he did what was the same thing as saying it. He went towards the town. Here was then a man who, after more than half an hour, if found in this position, saying he was stabbed, moving towards home and not reaching home. How does this present itself to your mind? How are you going to explain it? Do you believe that he had been wounded by men who had left him there? If so, you will adopt that theory if you think it was a rational one. 
If you believe what he said about the wounds was untrue, that is an explanation that diminishes the difficulty. He was wounded, as he said, able to walk, to go toward home, even though he might have been frozen to death and got to sleep after the wound. Why did he not reach home? What was the impediment? As to the subsequent witnesses, I do not think that, in the absence of Billings' testimony, they sufficiently identify Mr. Snyder as the man who was seen, although I would leave that entirely to you as a matter of fact, but that the testimony of Mr. Billing, with the testimony which follows him, suffices entirely to convince you that Mr. Snyder, in a state of irresolution, unwilling to execute his purpose, hesitated, not content to go home, nor with firmness enough to take his life, was rambling and tumbling about in the dark at night. If he is the man referred to by the subsequent witnesses, then it is almost impossible not to look back to this letter, however obscure, and not to look back to Billing's testimony, not to look back to his interview with his sister, not to take a painful view of this occurrence. Now, was he seen afterwards? Did he remain on that bridge without going home? Or was he dead, or soon after murdered by one or more unknown men? Why, gentlemen, if Billing's testimony is true, it requires a great deal of self-possession to comprehend how this man was not taking care of himself, and why he did not go home, and so forth. We come to a later hour when there is something more like identification. There is a man who was engaged in the zinc works and who was walking home after two o'clock at night. The court here reviewed the testimony of this witness, who saw a person resembling Monroe Snyder standing on the bridge crossing Monacacy Creek, and then proceeded to say, Now, gentlemen, I think this is sufficient identification for us if it is to be considered by you for what it is worth. If Billing tells the truth, and as I said, I see no reason why we should disbelieve him, and if Monroe Snyder as is unquestionable, never got home, and a man is seen in this attitude whose figure resembles Monroe Snyder. So then, this man roamed about in the darkness of this night until after two o'clock. Was that Monroe Snyder? Had he, before or after he was with Billing, stabbed or attempted to stab himself? Had he passed or crossed the bridge without going to his house? Had he thus been on the bridge? If so, there is evidence tending strongly to prove that he was meditating suicide, that he was irresolute, that he could not bring himself to carry his purpose into effect that for the want of an instrument to stab himself, he could not stab deep enough, that if he meant anything else, he could not execute his purpose. In short, he was very irresolute. Now, gentlemen, it does not do to theorize about what may have occurred. If we can find any other rational view of the case, it would be very irrational to say that he had been, all this time, meditating suicide. He nevertheless might have been afterward murdered and thrown over, but if you can find any other way of reconciling evidence, as I said before, probabilities are not facts. If he was the same man, as the defense alleges, thus roaming about, he certainly had not courage enough to execute his purpose. However, you may believe he meditated it. If you believe that he meditated suicide, whether he formed that resolution after the cars had been detained at Easton, or had formed it as long as some 48 hours when he was conversing with Mrs. Kresge some earlier time, when he was writing this paper for his son, I say, if you find that he meditated suicide, then I would advise you to attribute his death to the purpose he had formed if you can reconcile the way the body was found with suicide. But observe, you must be convinced that he meditated suicide, and that the position of the body was consistent with the commission of suicide. If, on the contrary, gentlemen, you doubt his identification by billing, if you disregard this loose identification which followed, if you think the writing and the interview with Mrs. Kresge can be reconciled with a more natural and more innocent purpose, why then there is no trouble in your verdict. But supposing that you cannot get over these things, supposing that he meditated suicide, then let us recur to the crisis. How did his body get where it was found? Could it have reached the position where it was found without some other human agency than that of the deceased man itself? You have heard the arguments there are about the idea. You have perceived already that for a murderer to throw a man over, intending to kill him from that height, is by no means an impossibility. That a man himself should form that idea, intending to commit suicide, deserves some consideration. 
if he happened to fall on his head, it would do very completely. It is for you to say whether there would not be more than that blood on the hat, and whether his skull would not be dashed to pieces, but he might not have fallen on his head. Might he not at least have broken his arms or legs and saved his life and not been killed by it? Did he choose that mode of death, therefore, if he wanted to commit suicide? The fact is evident the body was found, but is it found where it would have been consistent with such a purpose? And if you find the purpose executed, you might get over the difficulty. But if you find that the body could not be where it was without some other human agency than his own, have the defendants succeeded in proving suicide? The burden of proof is on them. I don't bring it beyond any unmanly doubt. I mean within a reasonable ground. If you think that that man could have got to the place where his body was found without some other human agency, then your verdict should be, I think, for the defendant. If you find from the evidence that he meditated suicide, I don't say that as a matter of law, but as a rational conclusion from the evidence, or if you find the contrary, and I don't know how far a man of 50 can jump, but I believe 9 feet is a pretty good jump, we young men think 13 feet is a pretty good long one, you can take into consideration these measures. But as far as a man could jump, he would fall much short of it. There would be a curve inward before he could get to the ground. And if you think he could have got, by his own jump, more than six feet, then his body was found twenty-odd feet from the bridge, as I understand the evidence. Could he have got there? If you think, further, that he could not have been where he was found without some other human agency, then it would be forcing things to say that he committed suicide, and murder both, or that he attempted suicide and was afterward murdered and dragged to the place where he was found. These are fancies which you will hardly entertain. The learned judge commences and closes that portion of his very able charge to the jury, which touches the question whether Snyder committed suicide or was murdered, with directing attention to the difficulty of comprehending how the body could have been where it was found, without some other human agency than that of the dead person during his lifetime. The court thinks that if Snyder could have got to the place where his body was found, without some other human agency, then the verdict should be for the defendant. In the mind of the court, the whole question resolves itself into a solution of this difficulty. Everything else points, by inference, unmistakably to suicide. But, says the court, as a rational conclusion from the evidence, a jump of twenty-odd feet from the bridge into the stream beneath is too much of a jump for human credulity. For a murderer to throw a man over, intending to kill him from that height, is by no means an impossibility, says the court. But his honor does not say that it is or is not an impossibility for a murderer to seize his struggling victim and throw him at arm's length to such a distance from the bridge. The court thinks thirteen feet is a pretty good long jump, quite too heavy a strain to place upon the legs of a man of fifty. But there appears to be no limit placed upon the distance to which a man may be thrown by a murderer. The body was found twenty-odd feet from the bridge, exclusive of the curve inward. The Dowdy Snyder was no infant to be tossed, unresistingly in such a manner. Ordinarily, it would be regarded as hardly within the bounds of possibility for a murderer to throw his victim to such a distance. At the time of the occurrence, there was no evidence tending to show that Snyder either was thrown off from the top of the bridge or threw himself off. There were no bruises or marks upon his person indicating such a thing, marks that would have existed equally in either event. As for the distance the body lay from the bridge, that of itself did not conclusively prove anything, for it was known that water had been let into the stream early that morning from the dam above, in sufficient volume to have moved the body several feet. The body must have been moved by the force of the water flowing down the stream. But whether it was moved or not is immaterial, so far as falling from the top of the bridge upon the stony bed of the stream below is concerned. His body was never subjected to such a fall. Of course, the jury jumped to a verdict for the plaintiff. End of section 74.